Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The race is on, and with the second Formula One test in Bahrain taking place later this week, we're looking ahead to the crucial final three days of running ahead of the start of the season. And with Nikita Mazepin and Earl Carley out of F1, we ask what next for Haas. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to offer their insight and expertise are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, Gary, how are you enjoying this brief pause between tests? It was a pretty frenzied month, February, wasn't it, with car launches and three days in Barcelona? Yeah, it was. Um, it was good to see the cars all up and running in Barcelona, though. So, you know, I think we'll be seeing um, lots of progress or lots of developments in Bahrain because, you know, there is a whole new set of regulations. So, you know, we like to see the new cars and see the different ideas. But, you know, that's what the teams look at as well. So there's a lot of different... Uh, a lot of different stuff, I suppose, has gone back to the technical director's desk about suggestions and ideas and theories and thoughts. And uh, I'm sure quite a lot of that will be filtered down into seeing if it will work with their own designs and see what how they can adapt stuff. So we might have a bit of a clue in Bahrain um, at the test because, you know, they're not coming back to the fir- to after the first race. So in reality, you know, the Bahrain test is, is the important test. The, the Barcelona test was more of a learn about the car, a bit of a shakedown, and, uh, and then plan from there. So, yeah, this will be a real test. Yeah, and we're going to delve into plenty of the detail of what to expect from Bahrain in a moment, but also say hello to Mark. You're also enjoying the gap after Barcelona. It's been just a fascinating start to the season, hasn't it, seeing these new cars running? And I think going into a second test, we've got more answers needed than normal, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, with the newness of the, the formula, I think... Um, that first test, I know we're not supposed to call it a test, we're supposed to call it a shakedown, but it was a test. Um, it, we have a less uh, refined picture than normal, and um, the um, the porpoising issue that uh, pretty much everyone experienced to some extent, um, I think, has maybe um, given us a less, as I say, a less refined picture than we would normally have after three days of running. So um, they've had a bit of what, as Gary's saying, they've had a, a bit of a, a while to think about it and uh, work out some solutions and get a, a clearer picture. But I think we're also going to see some, you know, um, quite significantly different cars, not not a, as a result of the difficulties in Barcelona, but just um, planned, um, you know, second iterations of the, the cars after uh, getting those ones ready for testing. Yeah, that's what's going to make this test particularly fascinating. And I think it was pre-season running 
that F1 decided to call it in the end. They initially called it shakedown. Then it was pre-season running, which is completely different to a pre-season test, as we'll evidently discover this week. But before we get on to our preview of the second test, let's delve into the big story of recent days. On Saturday morning, Haas released a 53-word statement saying simply, Haas F1 team has elected to terminate with immediate effects the title partnership of Earl Carly and the driver contract of Nikita Mazepin. As with the rest of the Formula One community, the team is shocked and saddened by the invasion of Ukraine and wishes for a swift and peaceful end to the conflict. So, Mark, Mazepin's out of Haas, so is Errol Carly. Was this inevitable? Yes, it was. It, uh, unfortunately, once um, once the invasion had happened, uh, it although motor racing is not um, as much of a, a national sport as, as the Olympics or, or you know the World Cup, um, it's it still it, in this case in particular because it the the Oral Kali um carried the the, the Russian colors um it, it did make it um very difficult to imagine a way around it now had um that um the the backing of uh, Mazepin had that been um you know the the more had it been more dominant uh, in, in the the team's financing, it, it might have been a much more difficult decision for Haas. Um, and had Mazepin set the world alight with his speed, again, it would have made the decision more difficult. But as it happened, it, it, it inevitably went in the direction that it did. Yeah, and we should stress that he's not lost the drive specifically because he's Russian. He's lost the drive because there's a contract in place that Obviously, the money's not being able to get through. There's all sorts of limitations on travel and visas and that kind of thing. So there'll have been various contractual things that that will have led to this not happening. Because as we know, the FIA does allow Russian drivers to compete as long as they're independent athletes, as it were, and not displaying Russian symbols, etc. Mazepin himself did release a statement saying he was disappointed to hear the contract had been terminated, describing it as a unilateral step. Said he was willing to comply with the terms the FIA demanded but that this willingness was completely ignored. But I think the bottom line is that Mazepin didn't, over the past year or so, give Haas many reasons to do in favours. He was in because of the backing. The backing has become impractical, and, and that's the the upshot of it. But Gary, how awkward is it for a team to lose a driver at this stage? Would you have been pleased to have the chance to put in potentially a stronger driver, or would you be frustrated at the setback and the discontinuity, particularly given how important the second test is for Haas, as it only managed 160 laps in Barcelona? Well, I think you said it there, anyway, that you know, they, over the last year we didn't sort of um, cover himself in glory in any way. Um, I think he was fairly political within the team as an individual as well, and then plus his father on top of that. And with the Oricali money being, uh, you know, as we can see, um, Russian colours, I suppose, it has a big association. So you need, the, you need the money to do the job. That's the first thing. Has, you know, the money, no matter how much it really is, it warranted that amount of space on the car. So that that comes as a you know as a sum of money, and that will need to be replaced somehow. Now, whether um, Haas will put his hand in his pocket a bit deeper, or whether they'll find it from somebody else, um, you know, it's another potential pay drive, I suppose, that you're looking for, because that's that's what uh, Mazapan's drive was. He was paying for that drive. The money stops coming through, he loses his drive. I mean, it's a difficult thing because, again, as Mark said, you know the 
the Olympics, all that stuff. They're Russian-backed teams um, that are banned from all of that stuff. Um, and this is an individual uh, with close association to, to, to Russia. So it's it's a very fine line, I think, to, to sort of ban all Russians. But obviously the world will make it more difficult just because of all that stuff. It's a world for, a world class formula. So you, you've got to go to all different countries and visas and stuff will become a drama. And even just the little stuff like staying in hotels, you know, whenever people, it's going to become more of a drama um, as time goes by unless, unless Russia pull out of the Ukraine. So the big thing for Haas uh, is a drama losing your driver. It's the best time to lose it if, if, if you are going to lose it halfway through the season is a, is a bit more of a drama because you've got to, you know, you got, you fitted into the situation. You've got to know the car and you've got to know the people and driving the car properly. Whereas right now, none of that's really happened. So they need to make decisions quickly. And if the budget is going to be a, a drama, they need to sort of find out a way of subsidizing that. So there are drivers out there. There's very good drivers that would be, you know, let's say a step up in Mazapan for sure in that seat, as far as uh, being capable is concerned. And there's a, there's pretty decent drivers out there that have got some money as well. So uh, there is a bit of a selection. Um, I think that you know, for Haas, they need to sort of just think about it carefully what their big plan is because this this season, you know, there, there is a lot of races, so you don't have to rush into it. You can afford to sort of let two races slip by, three races, maybe four before you really get the right driver in there with the right budget. So think about it carefully, plan for the future, and uh, make sure that plan can take you through financially to develop the car. As you mentioned there, the practicalities of it, we should note that the Motorsport UK, I almost called it the Motorsport Association, got rebranded though, didn't it? Motorsport UK has banned Russian competitors. So Mazepin, as it stands, couldn't compete in the in the British Grand Prix, for example, even though the FIA hasn't banned uh, Russians, provided they agree to certain terms. So yeah, many complexities there. But Mark, at the time of recording, we don't know exactly what's going on in terms of Mazepin's replacement. So what are the options and how do you expect it to play out? Uh, the third driver is Pietro Fittipaldi. And it would be my expectation that he will be in for a couple of races because um, as far as I understand, the, the sponsorship that he brings um, has a term within the contract whereby he will be given a race should an opportunity open up. Um, and this would presumably trigger that clause. So um, that would then give them time to... Um, figure out a longer-term solution. And the the options there are, the obvious one is Oscar Piastri, who is uh, on the sidelines, but he's, he's Alpine-contracted uh, third driver, but uh, Formula 2 champion, um, vast potential. Uh, there is super sub Nico Hulkenberg, um, a very, very capable driver. Probably the most likely of all uh, longer term is uh, Antonio Giovinazzi, uh, who had been um, down to do a season of Formula E, but uh, that didn't get off to a great start. And I think he would be um, delighted to get another chance at Formula One. And so he has Ferrari associations, as does Haas. So you could see that um, having a certain logic. Yeah, and I can imagine that Haas will have been inundated with drivers offering their services, including some who will have promised various sums of money, some of which may even actually have access to it. So an interesting time for them. Gary, who would you take if you had the choice in Haas's position? 
I think if I had the choice, it would uh, for the you know this this year coming, it would uh, either be Hulkenberg or Giovinazzi. As you say, Giovinazzi's got a, a lot of connections with Ferrari, so that's a, a fairly simple thing. He, you know, he's shown he's uh, fairly capable. He didn't have a real good run with uh, with Alfa Romeo, so you know he, he could hold his head high against Kimi for sure. Um, so coming in with a varied experience from another team to Haas would be a good a good thing as well. Um, so I suppose he would be the the ideal candidate to to slip in there. But Nicola Hulkenberg is. You know, he's got an association with Aston Martin. So you've got to burn your bridges. And whereas, you know, for Nico, where's that going to take him? Does he want to drive for Haas, really? That, that would definitely be the, the the nail in the coffin, I suppose you might call it, as far as getting a competitive drive is concerned. I think Nico's still hoping that he can be a super sub in a super team if it comes up. And, and I don't think you can look at Haas at the moment as being a super team. So I, I would be reluctant if I was Nico Hulkenberg to to take any offer there because it will definitely close the door for for potentially good opportunities whereas for uh, Giovinazzi I don't think his Formula E career has taken off the way he thought it would and uh, he was capable of Formula 1 he was capable whenever he did you know GP2 as it was at the time or F2 whatever you like to call it um, not GP2 uh, yeah F2 um, so end of the day it could be a door open for him that's not much different from the door that was open to him at Alfa Romeo before. So it's not a big smoke round. It's just a, a different team to drive for and he can bring experience from that other team. So that would be my idea if I was with Haas. I think I'd bring him in. Keep an eye on the race website to find out news of who's running in the test and this season. But yeah, it does seem likely Pietro Fittipaldi will be in the car for the test. And of course, he filled in for a couple of races for Roman Grosjean at the end of 2020 capable enough driver although a fairly unremarkable cv his his peak was winning the world series formula v8 3.5 or whatever it's called the continuation of the old Renault world series that was in 2017 when it was quite a, a weak championship but he will do a, a tidy enough job at least well, let's move on to the test itself mark as we've said it kicks off in bahrain on thursday how much do you expect the cars to have changed since that first test it depends on the team. I think the, the, the big teams, quite a lot. Um, certainly expecting a very different Mercedes in the Bahrain test from the one we saw in Barcelona. Um, there's some pretty interesting um, murmurs coming from inside and in that uh, it's a lot quicker. <laughs> it's a lot quicker in the sim than the car that we saw in Barcelona. I'm sure Red Bull have got something um, equally uh, progressive um so yeah the, of, of the of the big three teams that we saw barcelona mercedes red bull ferrari i would expect certainly the mercedes and red bull will be uh significantly developed probably visually so from what we saw ferrari um don't know yet um but the others yeah there's just going to be the i'm sure the the evolutions that were already planned because there's quite a bit of tunnel time available after you have to commit to building the car for the first test. Um, and, and so why why not just keep plowing on? And then you have to make the parts just in time for this one. So I think we're going to see quite a lot of that. Um, you usually see that more in a, a new um, a new set of regulations like this because there is, um, there's a st- steeper learning curve at the beginning than when the regulations have been stable from one year to the next. So yes, I would I would think we're going to see quite a, a significantly uh, different um, set of cars. 
Yeah, Ferrari team principal Matteo Bonotto has suggested they won't be having big changes and it'll be all about optimising the car they've got. But we shall see. There's always a lot of mind games going on when it comes to this period of testing. Gary, how big a step would you expect to see? We have seen quite often in the past teams signing off cars, building all the parts quite early to clear the decks for R&D. So we could see quite quite a big jump for those who pushed that to extremes, couldn't we? Well, yes. Uh, the big thing is, uh, as Mark just said there, getting the, the cars ready for the, what was it, the fourth week of um, of February for the first shakedown test or pre-season shakedown, whatever it was, <laughs> um, means that you have to press the button on the manufacturer and those major parts, the parts that can make a real performance difference to the car, probably you know, at the very latest, middle of January, even early January, because, you know, making the moulds or tooling and everything for an underfloor isn't, you know, isn't the job, an overnight job. It takes a bit of time. So you're probably talking middle of January, you're pressing the button to make that stuff. And then past that, you've still got a lot of wind tunnel time to keep on the research of your new car. I suppose we could say that the, you know, the, the new car or the car for 2022 won't actually appear until the pit lane goes green. Um, on the Friday of the Bahrain Grand Prix. That's the first time we really know who's got what because that's what everybody's working to. There's interim steps on the way there, and it's all in the plan. The thing that will uh, alter that plan is how the car up worked during testing in, in Barcelona because that's something you don't know about. You know, All the stuff and all your simulation and all your modelling and everything, is you can do that 100% at the factory, but there's nothing like hit the car hitting the track as to what really happens. And with ground effect cars, you know, by definition, uh, there's a big ground effect. And the only way to simulate that is to go to the track and drive across the top of the ground and see what happens. And a lot of people found various problems with that. So that will have altered the direction of their development program or their their update program, I suppose you might call it a bit. Um, And they will want to try and get on top of those problems. Not that not that everybody had the problem that was costing them lap time, but it it's just, you know, for the driver, it's something that's happening. And it, you can sort of struggle with vision a little bit. If you've got too much porpoise and going down the straight, you can, you can struggle a bit with vision because the car is bouncing around a little bit. So that will have altered the direction of the development program slightly. Um, and that will be then, you know, some of this test you'll have to sort of confirm while you've got on top of it because it, it can just be around the corner waiting on you. You know, when you get to a different track, different temperatures, different track temperatures, different sets of bumps and whatever, you know, even though you haven't had a problem, it can just be there waiting to to uh, to raise its ugly head. And that's the last last thing you want. You don't want to get yourself into a little window where you're really not sure what's going to happen next time you go out for practice. So you've got to get confidence that you know what's making it happen. You know how to get out of that problem. And you don't want to throw away too much performance. So um, parts will be coming steadily through the test, I'm sure. Um, but it's one of those sort of situations where, again, as I say, the Friday of the Bahrain Grand Prix will be the first time we really know what a 2022 car actually looks like. And then on top of that, it's true performance. And Mark, with what Gary was saying there, these are the kind of two streams of development we have to consider there's the long-term stuff that was always in the pipeline and then there's the stuff that has come directly from Barcelona which will be specifically about porpoising now the solution to that is somewhere in in the middle of the Venn diagram between ride height changes and floor changes ultimately isn't it yeah absolutely and that's um making it a, an extra complex set of equations for the team so it's going to be fascinating um, watching them work that out 
And I don't know if this will apply now that the teams are so much bigger than and more sophisticated than they were in the last ground effect era, which was you know, 40 years ago. Um, but back then it could be that a ground effect car could just suddenly switch on with a relatively small change that suddenly got the underbody work in the way that was intended. And you, you, you saw big, you know, leaps in competitiveness um, from one race to the next. But I think a, a lot of that was just down to the, the, the sizes of the teams. But it, it, it might actually be um, interesting to see if it's actually a, a trait of a, a ground effect car that, it, you know, it, if it's not working properly, it's quite a long way off and the relatively small change can just suddenly switch it on. It'd be interesting to see if that's still true. And, of course, we should remember that the characteristics will vary from circuit to circuit depending on the the speed of the circuit, the configuration, etc. So there's going to be worse circuits for it than Barcelona, probably. Alex Albon, in fact, suggested that would be the case. And we've got another different circuit in Bahrain. Again, Bahrain wouldn't be the circuit you'd say where it'd be the worst problem, but it's another challenge. So, yeah, I mean, there has been talk about potential rule changes for it or even active suspension as a sponsor but ultimately gary ground effect it's a well-known phenomenon isn't it there are championships around the world that have ground effect cars where they solve this problem it just it's down to the teams to a understand it and b be disciplined enough to accept that you may have to give away a little performance in order to run in a sensible configuration yeah, I mean, you know, ground effects nothing new. Uh, last year's Formula One cars had ground effect. It's just the degree of it that causes the problem. So the more you have, and you know, Formula One teams are not—they're not stupid people. They're going to pursue the maximum performance of the car using ground effect to its pot- full potential um, because you can't afford not to. Yes, you might have to give away a little bit now and again just to make sure that you don't get yourself into this little window of. of being so near the mark that the porpoise becomes a problem. But I think, you know, most of them will have got on top of it very, very quickly. Um, looking at all the stuff I've been looking at on side pods and stuff, there's there's very different um, there's very different ideas down the, the floor, the ceiling of the floor, how the the, um, the the turning veins underneath the floor work, how the outside of the front corner of the floor works. There's very different ideas. There's some good and some not so good. Um, in my book, and who am I to talk about that? But anyway, there's some good and not so good. And it'd be interesting to see whether there is a trend, whether they, 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 everybody sort of focuses in in one direction. You know, That'll be the important thing, I suppose, over the Bahrain test, is to see whether there is a... Now that everybody's been woken up by other cars, to see whether there is a solution that will uh, everybody will head for. And that's that's going to have to wait and see until the cars start running and we see the developments from people like Mercedes and Red Bull. Yeah, and of course, when it comes to the development, we have to remember there are limitations in terms of the cost cap, in terms of the aero testing rules. So it's not quite how it used to be in terms of that development war. So there's a big impact that's been had there. This podcast is brought to you by Gran Turismo 7, available March the 4th on PS5 and PS4. Gran Turismo uses the power of the real driving simulator, which has been developed over 25 years to create the ultimate immersive experience. So whether your thing is racing, car collecting, tuning for those last crucial tenths of a second of performance, designing your livery or even photography, Gran Turismo will let you find your line. There's a wide range of game modes for everyone, including fan favourites Arcade, Driving School and GT Campaign. 
and the legendary GT simulation mode allows you to buy and sell, tune and race your way through a solo campaign, unlocking new cars and challenges along the way. There's over 420 cars available from day one, with Gran Turismo recreating both the look and driving feel of iconic supercars. There's more than 90 tracks to race them on, including some classic circuits from GT history and a wide range of weather conditions to test your skills in. Gran Turismo really makes the most of the technology of the PS5, with adaptive triggers letting you feel the all-important variation in braking resistance and 3D audio allowing you to know exactly where your rivals are when racing wheel-to-wheel. That, combined with the haptic feedback, means you can really feel the car under you. Internet is required for most functionality. Find your line with Gran Turismo 7. Well, Gary, you mentioned who are you in your book to, to talk about side pods, but we did have a question on our last podcast that came from one of our Race Members Club members, which we briefly addressed, but I said we'd put it to you on this podcast as well because it's primarily aimed at you. And it came from Christian Candler, who asked about Ferrari, and he said it was really interesting to see Gary so confused about Ferrari's aero concept on the launch car episode, saying that it looks like two different philosophies of the car put together. Now that there was some positive talk about the Ferrari pace, do you have a better idea of how they've got that advantage? And he adds that this isn't questioning you, Gary, but just if you learn more from Barcelona. Yeah, uh, you know, every day and every way, you should learn something more. And uh, yeah, um, you can understand it a little bit more now, the fact that by by trying to make a fairly blunt front section of the side pod, you end up creating a, a, an outwash, a barge board effect that, that drives that flow over the top of the leading edge of the floor, um, which hopefully sets up the the scavenging effect on the front corner of the underfloor, which means you're pulling some air out of the front of the front of the floor, which means the diffuser has lesser a lesser quantity of air to try and speed it up as it gets to the diffuser. Um, my my sort of reasoning behind my comments earlier on was the fact I didn't see the room at where the side pods at its widest. I didn't see the room for that vortex that goes down the floor to sort of be um, initiated i suppose you might call it and then allowed to 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 grow in size and that's what happens to it it's like a it's like a, a bit like a tornado you know it's just a whirlwind um you you initiate it by having some pressure differential across somewhere you set up the rotation with the little bits of kit that you have on the side pod there and then you have to allow it to grow and i don't see still don't see their side pod detail um I can see how they initiate it, but I, I, I can't see how they let it grow to be the, the to be the, the volume that it needs to actually seal the back part of the floor. That's my biggest argument. The two the two don't go together. Now, what they have done is they have the back, if you take sort of split the car down at the widest part of the side pod, the rear of the car ha, has a very aggressive, a very quick coke ball. Um, so you you know you open up a low pressure area inside the rear tire there. Um, on top of the floor, inside the rear tire and the, and the side of the gearbox as such. And you've got the, the diffuser floor on top of that, or at the bottom of that, sorry. So you, you pull the airflow in from the, the front of the rear tire because the rear tire is displacing a lot of airflow and you, you try to suck that inside the car. And that, in effect, helps you set up the, uh, the, the vortex that helps seal the floor. So they've gone about it in a very different different way. Um does it achieve the same goal? Obviously, they think it does, and obviously, from the lap times we've seen it, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. 
the top of the side pod with its with its hollowed out section and that I don't really quite understand why you'd do that because you know the airflow is not going to want to follow that surface their louvers they have in there isn't actually just having a, a pool to fill up with airflow coming out of the radiator it's a fairly confusing top to the side pod now you have to have these big rads on the outside edges an R50 or an R75 in some areas so you have to have a big blended rad on top of the side pod but why you'd want to dip it back down again in the way they've done i don't i don't quite understand um so there's there's still questions in my mind as to the whole package um and if i look at the detail on on the on the mclaren floor i can see how they initiate the vortex i can see how they try to let it build up i can see how they try to make it work on the edge of the floor um and they're running in the rain, the vortexes we saw on that, which we highlighted and put on the, on the website. You know, you can see that all. On the Ferrari, I can't see that. I can see the, the vortex not forming to the same level. Now, is it a big thing or is it not? Does running the car near the ground just make up for it? But does running the car near the ground just put you closer to that porpoising problem? So uh, let's. I, I think I have to wait and see what really unfolds, to be honest, before making a... a a statement on it because i think i still don't quite see the the complete package on the ferrari it's obviously quick but i don't quite see the front and the back being connected up they still work but i can't quite get that uh, in my head that it's all sort of part of the same package mark how positive are you about ferrari we do have a piece on the site that gary did last week which was looking at the adjusted times putting in the tire offsets and ferrari was quickest on that metric still very sketchy times but that's what the numbers said there's sort of this feeling that maybe ferrari might just be kind of edging up towards the mercedes red bull level yeah quite possibly it's a very very solid start for them um probably the the nicest program um, in terms of meeting their targets and getting the mileage and doing the times of any team. But that doesn't necessarily mean too much at this stage. But yeah, it certainly, it looked quick and consistent. When you look at it on the track, the drivers were instantly confident in it. They were able to attack the corners pretty much straight off. So it obviously felt quite similar to how it had felt in simulation for them. Um, the uh, the uh, GPS figures suggested it had a very strong end, a very strong power unit. Uh, Toto Wolf even commented that he thought it, it it appeared to be the strongest of all in terms of power unit out there. Um, so certainly, certainly, lots to be uh, quite excited about if you're a Ferrari fan. Um, but you know, you you've got competitors of the caliber of Mercedes and Red Bull and you know how much they can um, find and, and develop and it's very early days in a, a new set of regulations so it wouldn't be uh, absolutely out of the blue for one of those to turn up and be you know significantly faster than than Ferrari not necessarily going to happen that way but everything's still very open at this stage. So I wouldn't say we're very confident that Ferrari have got a world beater here, but it certainly doesn't look um, as though it's uh, it has any inherent problem at the moment. It looks it looks pretty solid start. And Gary, looking at the fact we're going to Bahrain, a different circuit, 
What are the track characteristics there that might show different qualities about the car? It is obviously more of a power circuit, even though the average speed is very similar to Barcelona. There's those four straights, so kind of the, the traction and the punch off the corners is, is quite important. So do you think we will see some slightly different performance characteristics of the cars showcased there? Yeah, I, I don't... We will, I'm sure, see different characteristics because there, every circuit has its own set of requirements, I suppose. But, you know, with the tools that these teams have now, you know, they'll they'll build up a a sort of ideal track from from all the corners that make a difference or that are, that are important and then have an ideal track for their sort of development. It's not as though they'll just develop the car to suit Spa or Silverstone or Montreal or whatever. You know, they'll, they'll actually build up a a sort of specific track where you get, you know, some good high-speed corners in it, some acceleration off low-speed corners, and you'll try to optimize the car for that. So it's like a, it's like a track of a, you know, five hundred corners maybe that you build up during the season to sort of try to get the best out of it. So I don't, I don't think the tools that we have now, I don't think you'll ever see a team, a team that's really good, you know, at, at Barcelona, let's say, and, and really poor at Bahrain. It'll be the pretty average through the through the season because that's what makes you win a championship is making sure you're pretty good everywhere maybe you'll be exceptional a couple but you won't be really bad at very many um we've seen that in the past you know whenever mercedes have had a little bit of a problem or you know ferrari like last year you know they were very good at, at hungary and in monaco but other tracks they struggled at so you do get that characteristic where you'll get a, a couple of tracks that you're very good at as i say but I don't think you get a couple of tracks that you're very bad at. You might just be averagely bad. But I think Ferrari's engine program, you know, has been since 2019, since they, they had their little misdemeanor with the, uh, how they read the regulations, I suppose. Um, I think it's been very strong and they've been coming on very strong. And whenever you have to look deeply at something, that's the time you find solutions. So I think they're, what Toto Wolf's saying about their engine is probably pretty true that they do have as good. Uh, a package as Mercedes uh, and or Honda or Red Bull or whatever you like to call it. Those three now are, you know, you can flick a coin for the difference in them, I'm pretty sure. There'll be a slight differences, slight, slightly different fuel you know, consumption or cooling requirements or whatever. There'll always be that little characteristic difference. But I think they've joined the club. I think the one that's got left behind now is Renault. Um, so it, that's so important to all tracks. You, you know, you cannot substitute power there's no that's the most important thing and i think through the years with the the hybrid engines we've seen that mercedes you know got on top of it quicker than others and that that was very very beneficial to them but i think now they've been caught up and the others are knocking on the door of being at least as good as them if not a little bit better so any track bahrain we will see different characteristics in the cars but a corner to corner but if you can get from a to b down the straight it's better or faster, or even just acceleration, not necessarily top speed, but acceleration off the corner, that first part of the straight, if your average speed down the straight can be higher, even though your your top speed is a little bit lower, if your average speed down, down that straight can be higher, then you, you have a big advantage that, you know, you or I can drive that car and nail the throttle down the straight, but going around the corner might be a slightly different, uh, slightly different problem. And Mark, obviously Bahrain also is going to be a lot warmer in Barcelona, the temperatures kind of peaked at I don't know, 16, 17 was about the hottest I remember seeing. Bahrain, we're going to see 30 degree ambient easily. Will that in particular when it comes to tyres, especially as we're hoping to see more 
race runs be a bit more revealing? Yeah, the tyre challenge will be quite different. The tyre challenge at Barcelona was, um, you know, getting getting them up to temperature and and, and keeping them there. Um, and it doesn't put as much emphasis on the rear tyres as at um, Bahrain. The the the, the, cha- the tyre challenge at Bahrain has historically been um, keeping the rears from getting too hot. So uh, and having to adjust your pace to keep it just below that threshold. So this is the first time we'll see in uh, how when we see the longer runs in particular how successful Pirelli has been in uh, meeting that uh, target from the target letter which was that they wanted a tyre whereby you could even if you got it too hot if you just backed off a little bit and let it cool down you could then push on it again and it would still be quick and the problem previously had been that once you got them too hot it didn't matter how much you backed off they wouldn't regain that performance so this will be the first real test of that because Barcelona wasn't that sort of circuit and it wasn't hot enough anyway so yeah I'm I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to see that I'm very encouraged by uh, the early signs but let, let's just see. And Gary given this is the second test and the final opportunity to Fettle the cars before the first race of the season again, which is in Bahrain. How different do you think we'll see the run plans being, particularly for those who had relatively straightforward initial tests? I think you'll head towards performance more because that's the important thing. You know, you're only a week away from the first Grand Prix. And I think with all the best will in the world to these cars that can uh, follow each other and pass each other, um, I think sitting in the front of the grid is still going to be the place to be. Um, and I think every every driver, every team will want to try and get there if they can. And you will you only get that if you actually sort of you know wring the car's neck and try to try to uh, get the best out of it. Because sometimes these cars, and especially again, I'll, I'll quote the ground effect part. You know, they only show their true vices when you put it on the limit. Um, up to that point in time, you know, being Mister Nice Guy doesn't do you any good. It's that last little bet when you're trying to find that last tenth of a second out of it. So until you simulate that or try to do that, you you know, you know don't really know if you can have the confidence to go in there. Um, you know, I go way back whenever we had uh, Ralph Schumacher and, and uh, Fisichella in the 97 Jordan. You know, the first time we ran the car, it was, it was really good. It was really quick. And we were very impressed by the, the performance of it. So we spent all our testing, you know, running around with 50 kilograms of fuel in the car, whatever it was, um, got to the first race and dropped it down to the sniff of an oily rag. And it was terrible. It just, the drivers didn't actually, weren't able to to find the pace, find the, the true potential of the car because it just, there was such a big difference. Um, so you, you've got to, you know, the reality of it is you've got to show it. Okay, these drivers, you can save a lot more experience and, our two new guys had the beginning of 97. But still, you know, they were racing drivers. They had raced in other formulas. So it wasn't as though they were new new to, to motor racing completely. But to find that limit and get the braking right and the turn-in right, and these cars, you know, they're, do you turn in on the brakes? Do you not turn in on the brakes? All that stuff you don't really know until you've actually tried to do it. So I think um, we'll see a bit more focused towards performance run. And obviously then, again, race runs, because you want to make sure that if you do get on pole position, you can make it to the second flag. So, you know, you want to try to simulate the race as best you can. All the grid, the heating, heating up on the grid, the car. You know, if you have a, for example, a, a full start and you go around 
pull around and have to come and start again. You need to do those things just to, to make sure that the car doesn't overheat because it, it can happen and suddenly your race is gone. So I think the, the Bahrain test will be more of a race weekend rehearsal for each of the days, to be honest, for each team. It's interesting you mention how you attack on the brakes on a qualifying lap. Charles Leclerc said one of the biggest things to adapt to as a driver has been the way the car performs under braking. So that's a big area that needs to be worked on. Mark, who currently, just to illuminate for listeners, is having a bit of a battle with his microphone at the moment. So I'll, I'll draw out the question while he fixes it. But we saw a few teams struggle for mileage. Haas, I think, had 1,300 kilometres less than Ferrari, who topped the test, only 700 48 kilometres, Alfa Romeo only about 70 kilometres more. And you could maybe throw an Alpine with that because although they had a decent amount of running, 1,243 kilometres, they did have quite a lot of struggles and were running a bit contained. And then on the final day when they were finally going to unleash some pace, they had the hydraulic problem that that struck and and cost them most of that day. So would you say it's those three teams who are really in a catch-up mode? Yes, and there's a certain element of dark horse about them because we don't really know... Um, that they are uncompetitive cars. If you look at the timesheets, they look like they're miles off, but I don't think that's um, you're comparing like with like there. So how they how those three cars compare with the the rest of the field and to each other, um, that that's one of the one one of the things we're going to hopefully discover in the um, the coming t- tests at Bahrain. The um, the Alpine in particular, I think um, yes, it, it was. Uh, they had certain limitations on the on on the running, which meant we didn't see the performance of it. Um, but they did actually say they were quite happy with the new engine. Um, it wasn't really put to the test because of the other problems with the car, but um, and it had had the hydraulic issue, and it was running fairly conservatively early on. But uh, the initial sort of look at looking beneath the, the surface. They feel that they they were very happy with the initial performance um, because of a what's a, a brand new concept of engine for them. And finally, Gary, this is very close to the first race, which is also in Bahrain. I think there's that the test finishes on the Saturday, and then they're practicing again for the race on the Friday. So, do you think that's a, a big help having it quite close to the first race with these new cars? That it is almost becoming an extension of the first race weekend, if you like. Well, yes, it's it's the right thing if I were, if you're a team, but it can be um, a bit of a repetition if you were outside looking in because, you know, there is no real reason for somebody to find that magic bullet between the uh, Saturday night test, testing, pre-season testing, and the, and the Friday morning of the race weekend. So sometimes as a, as a, as a challenge, it's better to go to a different track. Um, than, than where you did all your testing at because you know you, you have to do different stuff if you just give it a polish after a Saturday night and, and hope it'll run all right on the Friday morning then you know you're that's one way of looking at it as a team uh, I think that's the ideal thing for this start of this year because of the new regulations and because of probably the limitation on on spares if you if you, you know for example you know most of these teams would have had a family of rear wings um, which would have consisted of you know maybe five different levels, maybe even seven different levels of downforce. Um, they've all all got to be recreated again, and you're not going to do that overnight. So you're going to bring in some of them as time goes by. 
you'll probably, you know, you'll, you'll create your family or your three different levels that you, you might want to run in Bahrain. So you can test them during the Bahrain test and then use them uh, during the Bahrain race weekend, whatever one you pick as your requirement for downforce and straight line speed. But if you had a test, let's say in Bahrain, and then your first race was Monza or Monaco, you know, you'd have to have all that stuff available for all those different downforce levels. So uh, sometimes you have to play the game to allow the teams to build up their stock of componentry um, and also on the way learn a little bit so that they don't sort of box themselves in too much to too many spare parts. And I think running at Bahrain for the pre-season test and the race is a, is a pretty good solution. And of course, there's the second race of the season in Saudi Arabia latched onto the end of that as well. So it's a double header to start the season, a, a kind of triple header if you include the test as well. So it's going to be a busy old period, but plenty to look forward to in that test. Thanks very much to Gary and Mark for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen for more from them and the rest of the team. And make sure you check out the other podcasts from the race stable, including our MotoGP podcast and bring back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. And if video is your thing, head to our YouTube channel. As always, we will have daily podcasts from the Bahrain test, so stay with us for everything you need to know about F1's preseason. season